Before we begin, we'd like to tell you that our production process requires taping several weeks in advance each month. All the audio in this coming episode was taped prior to the national unrest in late May and June. We will discuss the issue more fully in our next episode, but let us each make a statement now. I, Michael Ralph, commit to using my privilege to signal boost the work of black authors and researchers. I condemn institutional racism in the educational system and society at large. I, Lawrence Woodruff, feel it is inappropriate to address a dire societal crisis such as discriminatory police brutality in a soundbite of fewer than 280 characters. I, Kelly Cluthy, will continue my work to be the best ally I can be for my students of color. I will make mistakes along the way, but I promise to learn, grow, and reflect in order to use my privilege to spark change in educational systems that are not currently equitable. Black Lives Matter. Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I now look forward to mowing the lawn. And I'm Michael Ralph, and we started keeping a pollinator garden. And I'm Kelly Cluthy, and I can't walk by a good rock without flipping it for cool bugs. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking two different beers from Treehouse Brewing Company. The first is Spiritual Unrest Coffee Milk Stout, and the second is Hold On to Sunshine Coffee Milk Stout. Kelly, what are you drinking? So I'm actually not drinking a beer today. I'm drinking a dry cider from Ancho in Washington, D.C. Yeah, we're drinking Spiritual Unrest, and uh, this... I liked the idea of starting, their names kind of have emotional tones to them. Spiritual unrest first. I, uh, our our uh, beer vizier has been sending us larger beers, so I got a larger glass to accommodate it. Uh, ah, this one will be fun to talk about. What are we doing today, impresario? As our minds turn to plans for the fall, many districts are making what-if plans for whether and how to return to in-person teaching. Guest host Kelly Cluthy brings guidelines for Missouri schools to consider how teachers can make use of safety recommendations in their classrooms. Later, we read an article about using critical analysis of online teaching to create humanizing pedagogy. We look at how to approach making inclusive spaces for online learning. Let's get started. We have returning host Kelly Cluthy is closing out her time at KU Center for STEM Learning and will be returning to teaching high school biology courses at Crossroads Preparatory Academy in KC Mo. Uh, Kelly enjoys spending her time keeping bees and catching snakes and sharing those experiences with her students. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Kelly. Yeah, I'm happy to be here again. Well, this is our third month in a socially distanced version of this show, uh, so we're all sitting on a Zoom call thinking about this past semester, but also trying to think ahead about what our next semester of school might look like. So we read Pandemic Recovery Considerations, Reentry and Reopening of Schools. Uh, this is from the Missouri School Boards Association Center for Education Safety, uh, published out of Jefferson City, Missouri, um, this past month. Yeah, so um, this is some guidelines. These are still very vague. It's just a list of things that uh, schools, administrators, HR departments for districts, etc. 
should probably think about as we move forward with the fall semester. Um, it's not a list of requirements. I want to stress that. Um, nothing in, is set in stone here. It is just basically brainstorming what our upcoming school year might look like. And so this document has lots, it covers lots of different perspectives on what that opening might look like. There's guidance for governance and for policy and for uh, building maintenance and all sorts of different things. And not all of that is quite as relevant to us as educators, uh, but there are some guidelines in there uh, that I think do matter to us. My first impression reading this is appreciating how complex the future is going to be. Because there is a lot in this document. And I know you, you were just saying that not of it, all of it applies to us, but a lot of it applies to us. Uh, one of the recommendations is make sure, you know, consider leaving enough time at the beginning or end of your class for your students to wash their hands. Have some point in the day where they're able to use sanitizer and clean their desks. So even though that doesn't necessarily mean change your pedagogy, it does mean the way that you invest time at school, it's going to start changing. Oh, for sure. That's what actually stood out to me the most is just thinking about where all that extra time is going to come from and what that means for me as an educator on trying to balance actual learning of content versus safety of myself and my students. But I am being I am being affected by what we read for our second paper and how I think about this first paper, because I was getting ready to say, I don't really want to get into the details of this document is for Missouri education. And so some of the specific details of how Missouri approaches education. But our second paper says, don't do that. So so I think that I do need to think about how this applies in the context of Missouri education, um, because a lot of these guidelines, you say it's going to take some extra time to wash our hands or going to take extra time out of the scheduled school day to visit bathrooms or to have distanced lunches or um, just having reduced class sizes so we can maintain socially distanced meetings. Well, that that space has to come from somewhere. And all these things are, it's going to take resources. And I'm, um, this is coming along with deep budget cuts in the Missouri education system right now, like right now. They refer to that. They refer to that. One of the things we need to do is reconsider personnel and staffing and contracts because um, uh, not everybody is going to, we're not going to be able to maintain everybody. Consider hiring more support staff and fewer teachers was one of the things that need to be thought about. And so like the, I'm going to pull it out as just a, a demonstrative example. There's a list in there in the building lists about um this is a recommendation, Kelly, you emphasized at the beginning, and I really, I do appreciate this document goes out of its way to iterate and reiterate, these are guidelines, these are examples. We don't presume to tell any individual district how to approach best serving their, their population, and I really appreciate that in the document. Um, but one of the suggestions is consider changing all of your thermostats to touchless thermostats. And I just, I stopped and I, and I like, let's imagine the logistics of that for a second. Are you going to pitch to a district that has 70% of its operating budget and all of these other material constraints placed and say, yeah, we're going to be able to afford replacing all of our thermostats this summer. And it's very detailed on just things that wouldn't have even crossed my mind at all, but they're included here. Like thermostats wouldn't even be on my radar as something to consider. Um, but you know, that might, make a difference if you got people touching them every day multiple times. 
So I think just how you're going to set up that classroom space to allow for proper social distancing is probably the most prominent questions that a lot of my educator friends are asking themselves right now. How do you get six feet of space between 30 students in a room that was built to maybe accommodate 24? So kids are going to have to go somewhere. And that's one of these things that this document does not give any insight on, just where do you put bodies? How do you allow for safe distancing between your students? Uh, so the existing paradigm of a classroom, and we all, I know that all three of us manipulate our desks to orient them in ways that are not these rows and, and lines. But just from a space management standpoint, if you're going to socially distance every student, we go from a, a classroom that's about a thousand square feet and can hold 48 students in a socially distanced situation, you're at about 15, about 15 students in that, like in the realistic orientation of that classroom. That's, that's, uh, that's, did you say 15? Yeah. Like if you could omnisciently just spawn them in the classroom, you can fit 19, but you can't. So yeah. With walking space, there's 15. So one of the things that was in this document that they suggested to address this issue is that they talked a little bit about maybe streaming classes to other parts of the building. So if you have a library that's not being used, maybe you can squat some of the overflow in there and stream your classes for the kids to watch from another part of the school even. I don't know how that works with elementary school kids, but it might be something to consider for older students. As a classroom teacher, I also don't really have control over how many students I'm given to put in my class. Like they're assigned to my class and they show up. So I'm going to be assigned more than 15 like that. Lawrence, you are Kelly. You are, you're going to be assigned more than 15. You just are. Uh, and so this ideal scenario doesn't really exist. So what do I do with that 16th student? You're going to have some control over where to put that 16th student. And so if I was making a choice, um, I think the question comes down to, does it, does it make sense to think about clustering? So I can't socially distance every student from every other student, but if I can have my group tables, as I even usually run them in my classrooms, where I have group one and group two and group three, and there are four or five students in every group, um, do I just spread those groups out as far as I can and then not shuffle groups like I used to? And so if you've got, if you've got disease in one group, you can at least limit its spread to that one cluster. I mean, that's something that a single educator could do, or even a building, if you had uh, the, the logistical ability. Yeah, considering that even further, if you actually identified a cohort of students that way, like these students have the same core classes, then they could actually be in the same classroom all day and the teachers rotate into those classrooms. I do wonder what that would look like for students who are in different types of math classes, for example. So some of your 10th graders may be in algebra too. Some might be in geometry. How do you rotate with that? That's a, and I feel like that's, that then gets back to if I, if you're giving me a choice between, am I going to do remote instruction or am I going to do some version of hybrid personalized learning where I have a mixed group of 30 students, they are, they are all in this room together for for half a day and 60% of them are biology students and 40% of them are physical science students. Fine. 
I can I can plan like Monday, the physical science students will be doing what is in effect for remote learning. Like I'm in the room, but my attention is not on them and they are working independently. And the biology students get live instruction that day. And then the next day you flip them. And so biology is doing remote learning while I'm doing an in-person, you have my attention, physical science lesson. And so that that's going to be a little bit more work for me as a teacher. But if I could do that to have an in-person lesson every other day with them, I think that's a far and way improved compared to having to do all entirely remote learning. Also, it if teachers are moving, there isn't there isn't any reason to say that for that, those 30 students that during their math class, they have a geometry teacher and someone else comes in to be an algebra teacher for those 30 students. Um, I don't know where though, I don't know where those teachers are going to be the other periods of the day. I don't know if that's going to work, but if the teachers are moving, the students stay still, then the teacher schedules are the ones that get more complicated and the student schedules actually become much more simplified. And honestly, I would much rather have a complicated schedule like that than planning on having all my students sit in rows facing the same direction and not sharing any resources. That's also in this document is just not even... They can't, they can't lend pens to each no other. No lending of pens. So, you know, if I can do some labs with my students or some activities, even just once a week with those students, but have to write two different lesson plans, I will do that. Well, and remember, these are recommendations. So I hear no lending of pens. And I say, well, I've already built a couple of UV goggle sanitation stations. So I'd just be running like, here's a flight of pens and paper clips, and we're going to sanitize them in two minutes from now. I pass them out like a parade, like everybody have pens and paper clips. Well, that was actually something that was in the document that I thought was really good. And that is, uh, I mean, I, I paraphrased it down to this one phrase, teach about viruses. And so that kind of goes along with what you're doing. Like, hey, I've got a UV uh, sterilizer and we can we can sterilize whatever we want in there. Like that opens up an opportunity to talk about, okay, what does that actually mean? How does that actually work? What does that have to do with viruses? What does that have to do with other organisms? What does that have to do with our health? Uh, and so that's an opportunity that as we, so why are we washing our hands? What is actually happening when we do that? Why is doing it with soap uh, really important uh, compared to just wa running water over it and, and things of that nature? Um, the opportunity to, to actually teach is also going to empower their understanding of what legitimate fears about this situation are versus illegitimate fears about the situation. So it has spillover to mental health consequences and uh, it'll, you know, but that means we will be covering less state sanctioned core content standards. Well, that's not even true because Kansas hasn't released their guidelines yet, but I get every impression that Kansas, in addition to Missouri are going to be, um, strongly endorsing schools to do what they need to do to serve their students. So that notion of, um, well, we're not teaching to this. Well, the state tests are gone. That's our third segment. Like that's, that's not really a thing. They're going away hand over fist. And I get the impression that all of our leadership's like, you're doing your best, do your thing. So I kind of, I, I reject that statement. Like I, I don't think that's, I don't think there's gonna be very many people saying that if any. I do want to point out that under the considerations for academic 
portion of this document. The first bullet point on there is that we should be creating a timeline for progress reports to be submitted for each student, class, grade level, and building detailing which standards for the grade level were taught and which were not. So it does sound like they are expecting some standards to just not be met at all next year, depending on how much time we actually have for teaching content in our classes. I mean, that's just good teaching practice in general, but I, I'm i guilty of, especially earlier on in my career, saying, well, the kids had the science class previously. They should be coming to me knowing X, Y, and Z. They're ready to go and learn these concepts that build off of those things. This is going to be an even more exaggerated version of the summer slide, where I think a lot of that knowledge is going to um, be harder for those students to build off of at this time when they come back to normal school settings. Uh, just like you said, uh, formative assessments and introductory assessments to know where your kids are and what they can do is a part of good practice. But in these uncertain times when they didn't get the fourth quarter to really hone and sharpen those skills, they didn't get any practice with it. That means some of the third quarter stuff that didn't get reinforced is just evaporated. And that's also discounting any stresses that they may have personally experienced because of direct COVID interactions in their life or their family or their friends, in addition to the general stress that we are all experiencing because our social dynamics have changed. So we're getting kids that are coming in with all different uh, social emotional setting than they had last year. The whole world has changed and that's going to put them in a place of disequilibrium. So there are new priorities. Their brain isn't taking that academic stuff from third quarter and saying, this is really important. So it's not regression. It may feel like, oh, I don't get to teach what I want to teach because this is my content. It's not regression if you have to start before what you identify as your content. It's actually progress because they need those foundations again. Oh, I do appreciate that in this document that there was significant information about supporting student mental health when they come back. That seemed to be a big thing to be focusing on uh, because you're right, kids are going through all sorts of trauma and processing this in so many different ways. And that's going to really affect what they're even capable of learning, however school looks like. Well, and that was a note that I made was trauma-informed instruction. There are folks who have been working on trauma-informed teaching and learning uh, for decades. There are professionals out there. There are experts out there. And every school district should be seeking that material. And we're going to provide some links in the show notes uh, for that kind of work. Uh, don't turn to the person who's selling it to you right now. There are people who have been in this work for a long time and find those experts because their experience will be valuable. Um, but the that lack of closure matters. There are some folks who are going to have close family members who have died. And there are going to be other folks who their family's financial stability has crumbled because of the incredible impact on the economy and their ability to earn a livelihood has been undercut. And other folks are just feeling lonely or dealing with depression because of that lack of closure. And we shouldn't minimize any of those experiences. All of those feelings are valid. And so we've got to be prepared to deal with all the trauma these students are bringing with them. 
It's not a competition about who's been hurt the most from this pandemic. We've got to find a way to help everybody feel safe and, and find a way to heal and find a way to move forward. And so that the trauma-informed resources in this paper mentions a few. We're going to provide some provide some more on the show notes, uh, but that matters. Uh, having worked with trauma is not the same thing as being trauma-informed, so find the actual experts who have been doing this for their entire career. Uh, you said it, that it's not a competition about comparing who's suffering the most, and that's really good because a lot of our mental health problems come from unfair, caustic comparisons of ourselves, and when we say, when we say to ourselves, yeah, I'm lonely right now, but none of my family members have died from COVID. What we're doing is we are suppressing and devaluing our own emotions. And that means that we are letting them linger and be unresolved. And anything that is unresolved, any problems that are not solved get worse. I, I mean, in terms of these sort of emotional suppression situations. So Allowing students to have a, ven a venue to communicate their emotions honestly and uh, with agency, regardless of what they've been through, uh, and acknowledging that the art that we create and the communication that we engage in with our pain is valid and important, regardless of the source of that pain or what we've uh, been through, uh, because we all experience the same events differently. Um, there are times like my sister and I will have, you know, been in the same car crash and she doesn't remember it. And I have nightmares about it for years. And so we can, we can have the same event and emote differently and we can feel the same way about different things. And so we, we need to give our students space to explore those things without judgment or comparison or rating the value of the experience. I just want to say, I thought that was really interesting that this document does talk about using like art electives and project-based courses to help students process and address social and emotional issues. That's actually included here where we may give students the opportunity to uh, create performances to express their feelings about COVID-19. They may have the ability to create art projects to process their feelings, um, use music and dance to address post-traumatic stress issues. So we may see a big shift in just some of those art electives and their actual role. It may be a form of therapy for students more so than just appreciating the arts. And I, along with that, I think we also need to recognize that I like we love school. I think that's part of the reason why we're educators. A lot of kids don't feel that way. School is not necessarily a safe place for them, and they may be happier at home right now doing distance learning. I wish I had more than just anecdotal evidence right now, but I've talked to some friends of mine who have school-aged kids who aren't big in the school, and they don't seem too excited to go back. But there's a, there's a note about um, providing faculty. It's, it's the top entry in uh, maybe it's buildings. It's an entire section, the very first entry is like professional development and training for professionals to deal with this. And there's a lengthy sublist. And the very first entry is train teachers to recognize symptoms of COVID. And no, like, no, don't do that. And the and that comes from the exact same sentiment I pushed back on related to mental health of um, a little bit of knowledge is really super dangerous. So don't make your faculty believe they have enough 
training and ex expertise in healthcare to be able to identify symptoms and diseases in their students because that will be used dangerously and that will be used in ways that will marginalize students who are already marginalized. Teachers are not healthcare professionals. That's not what we signed up for. That's not our training. Half training is dangerous. Don't do that. Period. Like, I don't give do's and don'ts very often, but don't do that. Yeah. I, I went through a mental health first aid training. Was that last summer? And that's kind of how I felt because it felt like they were training us to identify different mental health issues. But then they kept saying, well, you're not actually qualified to identify, but if you suspect something, you could do this, this, and this. And then it was just that weird gray area between we want you to have knowledge, but you don't have enough knowledge to actually like diagnose or do anything. So I totally agree. That's a fine line to walk. So like if we if we need to have more eyes on students to quickly respond to possible disease, okay, who are people who can do that? Let's bring them into the school and have them do that. Well, see, this problem that you're describing is um is what it is is a consequential response of you will have less next year. And it's probably not just Missouri. It's going to be Kansas. It's probably every state. This uh, economic downturn didn't affect just, you know, two or three states. We are all going to feel it. So uh, all of our budgets are going to get smaller. So our needs are going to increase because the situation is more complicated. And, and the resources we have to solve them is going down. And so the, well, you're saying don't pretend to be an expert at something you're not because Dunning-Kruger is real, real. And the flip side is that the flip side is having to tell taxpayers and parents that is not something we're going to deal with because we don't have the proper resources to do so. That's the only other solution. And it's not even a solution. That's the only other choice is that we're going to have teachers do this and it'll make you feel better in your neighborhood or we can't do that because we can't pay for it. Those are the two messages you can send. I, uh, I linked this in the document down there. This is from the CDC. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's their decision tree on reopening schools. One of the things that they have like one of the very first things is our ability to screen students and employees upon arrival for symptoms and history of exposure. Does that mean arrival to school every day? We're screening every student. I think, I think you do have to have more medical professionals in your building to be able to pull that off. This needs to be decided at a district level or maybe even a building level um, about the needs of the kids. If our teacher's job is to, Part of, I think part of a teacher's job is to, and as your mother so eloquently stated, know your students. And so when we see something that is, um, and is aberrant to that, uh, we, we, first of all, we have to know them first. We have to do the work to get to know them first before we can make those judgments. And that takes time and effort and sensitivity and responsiveness. Um, 
you got to know not just what they know and what they got from last year's education, but also how they interact when they're comfortable communicating and what they like and what they do and, and how you can engage them. You got to know a lot of things before you can make that call. And then later, like third quarter, you could say, man, you don't look like yourself today. How are you feeling? So like you can't really even begin to discuss the physical state of a student until you know them. And that takes time. And so to say, hey, in August, we had a PD about what a, co a COVID sneeze looks like, that is gonna lead to problems. We're in this together. Our second segment, we're going to turn our attention to um, thinking about ways to approach online pedagogy once again. So we read a critical approach to humanizing pedagogies in online teaching and learning. This was written by Rohit Maheta and Earl Aguilera. And this was published in the International Journal of Information and Learning Technology in 2020. I loved this paper. I did too. Uh, you guys are a bunch of nerds, but... <laughs> Uh, well, we do not dispute that. It, this paper essentially contains three stories that are analyzed from a um, humanization pedagogy perspective. So first we've got to kind of outline what does that mean? What is humanizing pedagogy? What, what is that about? Uh, thank you to Earl Aguilera for making this paper available. His use of language is so good. His use of language is so compelling. And so I feel like uh, I'm participating. He humanizes his paper and his own participation and his co-author's participation in the research in a way I want to write like this. Like I, I want to do research in this way. It's not just that he says I and we, but he talks about himself and his co-author and their experience. And he uses the appropriate language in such a way that it just, it's evocative. Yeah. It's, it's so good. The authors describe humanizing pedagogy and they lay out a framework for recognizing and validating the human context within which we teach. And that that is not something you can divorce from the ways that we deliver or provide instruction. It's not, we can't and we shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I think the core question, it came up over and over and over again. When you are considering what you are doing in the classroom, you've got to ask yourself, to what extent is this humanizing? And to who would this be exclusive or dehumanizing? Again, you mentioned that the writing was very good. Uh, the authors do an excellent job of using, of telling their personal anecdotes where they failed to humanize students and then what they had to do to rectify that mistake. Uh, and that is always excellent, compelling narrative. We are, we are doing our level best. We are trying to be inclusive. We are making steps um, to do things that are engaging and compelling for our students and give them all an avenue to participate. And yet, we must critically analyze that approach. And this is a, about a teacher who is like, okay, I'm working in this online space at this college and I got lots of non-traditional students. We've got, we got single parents, we got people who are full-time employees, 
and and so how they're we're trying to have this online experience so that they can manage themselves autonomously and still still engage in the learning process. So what we're going to do is so that it doesn't feel so disconnected, we're going to have this flip grid introductions to what all of my students are going to make a video. They're going to share the video through this social media outlet, and we're all going to get to know each other a little better. And one of the students was deaf. They made a video where they introduced themselves using sign language, and that was it. And if you didn't know sign language, you weren't going to know that person. But then they made a second video where they introduced sign language and then included subtitles so people could read what they were signing. So they did it twice. And so the rest of the students got to have this experience where like, oh, and the class was about pedagogy. The class was about teaching. So they got to see what does it feel like to not have your needs accommodated? And then what does it feel like when they are? And that was just a really excellent experience. And the teacher said, I chose this flip your three, not, you know, trying to say, hey, we're trying to have a more inclusive community. You get to introduce yourself. You get to speak about yourself. You get to present yourself in a way where you have ownership of yourself and your presentation in this environment. But it was not really inclusive for everybody. And so what the what the authors kind of unpack in the at the end of this vignette was they say um, they 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 share a quote from the student, um, kind of reflecting on the semester, and the student acknowledges that this was a, a source of some um, anxiety. A sort of they're not sure how this flip grid was going to work. It took me a while to learn, and so there, this was a burden. And the authors reflect and say this is a spot where we need to acknowledge uh, who did this approach humanize, who did this approach approach exclude. And what are we going to do about it? And they kind of stop there. And I think that that's really useful because having the student present multiple uh, video formats was really valuable for the able-bodied students. It was extra work for the student who, who couldn't hear. And I can't say I would be super excited about making multiple versions of my video. I might, I might enjoy offering that experience for others, but that is additional work. So what are we going to do about that? And the authors kind of leave that question lingering in the air. And I think that that is the perfect way to leave that question. Because to pretend that there's some universal answer proposes that there exists, even in a platonic sense, some universal neutral approach. And that's false. And we have to reject that. We are making choices. We must own responsibility for those choices and then critically analyze those choices. So in this case, they're like that student had to do some extra work. I need to really examine that. I need to see how I feel about that and what can I do to accommodate for and account for and predict and, and have a more equitable approach for that student. Gosh, if there was an easy answer, we'd print it, but there isn't. So we're not. And I really appreciate that acknowledgement. This is a hard choice. Ask the hard questions and grapple with the answers. The next story they titled Because of My Accent. And in their, um, in the classroom experience, again, they were using Flipgrid for students to create videos to participate in the, in not only introducing themselves, but some of their content. Uh, a lot of students uh, bought in and were comfortable making videos, posting things to the internet, being, um, you know, having a persona that they could use to say hi to everybody. Uh, but they found that there were two students 
who found that uh, they were uncomfortable with presenting themselves uh, through this video media. And one of the reasons why they were uncomfortable is because they had a thick accent. There is no such thing as the absence of, of accent. Everybody speaks with an accent. Um, and so um, what was true was that they had an accent that was perceived as non-normative by, by themselves. But there is some there is some version of the class accent that is the majority uh, held by the group, and so they perceive themselves as being different from that. But um, a piece of this paper, uh, hold on, let me let me, let me reference it because it's worth pointing out. No, it's in there. You're absolutely right. It says that there is no there isn't a normative United States uh, accent. There isn't a uh, normative human accent. Well, what happened is because there was not a diversity, uh, there was not a wide library of accent representation. The, the mode, the mode of accents was was one giant monolith, and then there were some others, and these were in the quote others. And so there was an implicit a pressure to identify those that are not in the mode of accents for the sample size as other. And that's the key: is that you are in the group or you are other and they felt they felt that this activity pushed them to feel in the group of other and because of that they were reticent to participate it was very difficult for them they they did not feel comfortable doing it um they furthermore uh, not just these students but other students in the um uh, in the class uh, used the uh, capability of creating like cartoon emoji images that cover their faces. So they're not, not only are they doing that uh, because maybe they have privacy concerns or whatnot, but they're not comfortable even expressing their identity through this medium. And, and that, that happened while making an attempt to say, I am empowering you all to be yourselves and introduce each other and, and communicate the information in a way that is that is um, true to yourselves. So the goal, again, this universal design goal, still led to students feeling like they were marginalized. I do think uh, like Zoom using video platforms in general is really intrusive for some students because you are looking into their homes. Like you guys are looking at my bedroom right now. Not every student is going to be comfortable with their peers, teachers being able to see that personal side of them too. Um, I've seen some college students commenting in certain like Facebook groups and things like that about, um, how their professors force them to have their video on to make sure that they are actually like participating and but that is just a big breach of privacy i have i did have a student who was working on a farm with his phone during lecture and i thought that that was intriguing to me and i was amused by it i know that he wasn't able to focus and get the best out of that lecture because he was managing a brush fire he was like putting tinder together and things that needed to burn and hay and doing this and then you know starting fire starter and then lighting it and then i'd ask him a question i'm like hey 
you there, you know, student X? He's like, yep, I'm here. I've got this question. He's like, I'm going to be honest. My attention's been split and I haven't been following the most recent thread. I go, that's probably because you're paying attention to the fire and that really matters. So full credit, you're paying attention to the right thing. Sorry that your attention is split. When we have these online things, what would what could have been different if I had manda- mandated that he be giving me his attention while he has these other pressures to meet other needs for his family life at home. You know, I know that him uh, being logged in is actually a a um, mark of respect for me because he's saying he recognizes that I am doing something for his benefit while he has other responsibilities and he can meet those responsibilities. But demanding you can't have your screen black because you you owe me something really flips uh, the ethical responsibility of a teacher. And I go back and forth just on whether or not we should be teaching synchronously or asynchronously because of issues like that. I had students, again, I was tutoring some students from AP Bio that I had in last semester, not current students, but they still want to learn from me. Um, So I was meeting with them synchronously, but I was working around um, their work schedules. A lot of them were babysitting and had family responsibilities and things like that. There is definitely, I think learning happens better when students have, have the opportunity to chat with each other and me. But when you're juggling things like fires or family obligations or work, Maybe we put some of those things aside for asynchronous learning so they can devote their attention to when it works for them and their schedules. Make better mistakes. Then how was the beers? I guess how were the beers, but that's telling in and of itself about how they were. I had a really hard time making distinguish making a distinction between the two this time. Um, our our beer vizier um, had some comments about a review from last month, and he pointed out that even though you and I both um, drew some pretty clear distinctions between our two beers, that um, in some triangulated blind tasting, those differences didn't really come out. He broadly agreed with our tasting notes. Now, it is not... See, the issue, I think, is different than the one that you are describing. He is suspicious of our tasting notes. He thinks that our ability to mark the differences that we did comes from the alcohol percentage on the label. Um, I, I thought that the first beer, Spiritual Unrest, was... I think that it's what I feel is a traditional coffee milk stout. It was pretty, it was pretty bitter, it wasn't overwhelmingly bitter. It, it had a nice little bitter level, uh, but I didn't feel like it was very aromatic. I didn't taste a lot of sweetness in it. it. Let it be known for the record, Ralph shrugged. I thought that the second beer was, its flavors were even further muted than spiritual unrest, except that I feel that it was slightly a little more aromatic. And that maybe, I don't know if it's coffee bean or nuttiness, but I'm feeling something in the um, aftertaste that I didn't feel in the in spiritual unrest. 
That's kind of how I feel about my uh, cider situation. So I feel like I know beer pretty well. Cider is a completely new beast for me. So I actually had two different ciders while we were talking from the same brewery. Um, the first one, the rosé, was brewed with gold rush and red flushed apples. The second one was brewed with gold rush again and bittersweet apples. So I don't know. I know nothing about ciders. They're good. If you like tart beers, try a dry cider is my takeaway. Thanks for tuning in once again. This has been uh, an incredible semester where we have all overcome challenges that would have shocked us in January. So thank you for hanging in there. Your work matters. Uh, we're going to continue to try to find things that help all of us do a better job in reflecting and also in preparing for the future. So if there are particular questions or papers that you think can help you get more prepared for whatever next semester is going to be, please stay in touch on social media, on our website, so we can be doing the things and discussing the things that matter to you. Uh, enjoy your break, and we will see you next month. Discuss research, struggle well, and always be a learner.